0: a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army's STA patrols unit through the voices of the veterans who served in its ranks. Tonight, Kevin and I are talking to Ian Strachan about the early Stay Behind Special Observer Selection courses, which were run at the height of the Cold War in the 1980s. We'll cover the content of the course, the type of person required, the backgrounds of the instructors from units such as Special Forces and the Commando and Airborne Brigades. Later in the series, we'll interview serving members of the unit to discuss selection as it's run today. Ian attended selection on Course 1 in June 1982, and as a comparison, I was on Course 7 in February 87 and Kev Course 12 in June 89. Before
1: we start, I just want to follow up um on the General's podcast to highlight the progression of the original troop to a fully fledged battery. So in 1982, as the General alluded, was the formation of the first troop in 5 Regiment Royal Artillery. In 1985, 3-2 Regiment got its own troop. Both troops consisted of six six six-man patrols, all led by a sergeant or bombardier. And the troops were commanded by captains, and both of them had a troop sergeant major with support staff. In 1990, the two troops combined in five regiments to form 7-3 Sphinx special-OP battery, compr- comprising of two patrol troops of six patrols, a HQ troop, and this was commanded by a major and a full complement of support staff. In 1992, the battery was then renamed 473 Sphinx special-OP battery. As normal, we will start with our guest military bio leading up to when they volunteered for the selection course. And me and Colin will ask Ian a few questions just to draw out his 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 a little bit of a history about prior to him joining the, the Special OPs and his time in the Special OPs. So Ian, what year did you join the Armed Forces? Uh I joined the Armed Forces in nineteen seventy nine. It was black and white back then.
2: <laughs> nah, it really was. Uh, I'd left school. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. There was a, a career in accountancy waiting for me if I fancied it, but I didn't fancy it. I played a lot of sport and one long summer holiday, I just decided, I'm off to join the army. And down the office, signed up and was away within a month. I had not never really considered it. It hadn't been something my family did. My father had two perforated eardrums. He couldn't join the army. So there was no history of it. It just seemed like something exciting I'd like to do. And it was no more than that that drew me to it at the time. Uh, Never looked back, really. So what made you
1: join the artillery?
2: Well, (laughs) when I went down to the recruiting office, uh, I did all sorts of things. And one one of the questions they asked was, do I play any sport? And yes, I play hockey. And I played representative hockey. And at that time, five regiment RA were a hockey regiment. Never mind what they did. Soldiering, in, they were a hockey regiment. So uh, strings were pulled and things were said. And while I spent my time at Woolwich, I actually played for Woolwich when I was down there as well, as a recruit, much to everybody else's disgust. As a recruit, I got Wednesday afternoon off to go and play hockey with the officers. Uh, Nobody really liked that. Never never really went for me, that one. Uh, And I think as a result of... What was said at the recruiting office and what went on at Woolwich, 5 Regiment Like right? we'll have him, thanks very much. And I was off to 5 Regiment, Royal Artillery. I arrived there, bloody big guns, great huge tanks with big barrels. I, I'd never seen anything like it because I didn't have a military background. I expected something like a pack howitzer or a five light gun and arrived to these self-propelled monsters. I was like, oh my God. And that was where I got put for the beginning of my career as a gunner. Do you stride onto the guns? Straight onto the guns. Uh, dead exciting. Straight onto the guns, massive, great guns, uh, all sorts of challenges. But I don't know. Within a year, you're, you're kind of like, well, what do we do when we're not in the field? <laughs> oh, we clean it again, we polish it again. And then when we are in the field, we fire a few rounds and then hang about for a long time. And uh, yeah, I could tell straight away this is not what I wanted to do. Uh, there were some interesting jobs up in the battery that I thought I could get into. One was the survey party. They had a they had a Land Rover on their own. Three of them just disappeared off and did things. I didn't know what they did, but they disappeared off and did things. And then when they arrived back at the gun position, they got their dinner on. They cooked up, and everybody else was basically doing the same thing. I thought, well, that looks good. Oh, there's a the survey party off again. Where are they going? So that I could get into a bit of that. There's a wee Land Rover with three guys in it. That looks pretty good. They're a bit autonomous. And then obviously and time went by I discovered there was other things such as your uh, forward observers and stuff like that. And I got into that as well. And thought, ah, this is this is much more like what I want to
1: do. You went on to the OP parties then?
2: No. I did, but only after we'd come back from Northern Ireland. So I'd done a bit on the survey party, I'd done a bit on the guns, and then five regiment were Signed up for heading off to Belfast or not, Banner. Uh, we, as PBA trade Dragon Troop, we ended up in the Ardoin. Uh, we did a tour there. So it's the best part of nine, ten months by complete time you complete training, going yeah, for yeah. the party and did it there. And it was only after I come back from there I started to get into the F.O. party. That's when I started that. Uh, we were only back a year, a year and a bit. And uh, I was summoned one day, Troops and Major, Battery Sergeant Major and Battery Commander, and we're all in the office. Would you like to come and have an interview with the BC? I was like, what's all this about? Somebody was sent over to the garages where we kept the guns, and you have to go back there if they want to see you. I was like, well, at first I was like, I have no idea what this is about, and then it was a bit like, what have I been caught doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's more like it. I thought, well, I don't really know. There's nothing sticks in my head, so I'll go there with a clean conscience and see what they have to say. I arrived in the office, and uh, the three of them sat there, and there's a lovely, exciting opportunity. There's a new thing being formed. And we spoke for about, or they spoke for about 15, 20 minutes on what a good opportunity this was, how exciting it was going to be, how different it was going to be. But they never really told me anything, they, mainly because I don't think they knew anything. This new unit was being formed. and It's going to be a wonderful opportunity for guys like yourself. I think they'd figured out by that time that battery life wasn't for me.
1: Was this in 1982 or was it late 81? I
2: couldn't really tell you. I couldn't tell you the start date of training or whatever, but I th- it, was, it was literally within six weeks of beginning the course. Gotcha. So I was in the BC's office. They all spoke to me. Of course, I said, yeah, that sounds great. I'll do that because I did not want to be stuck in that gunshed six days a week, or whatever we were doing. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds brilliant. was marched out. Off I went. Hmm, this sounds like fun. A few days later, my troops sergeant major, who was a great guy, I called, well, I'll not even tell you his name, uh, called me in, and he gave me the lowdown as he thought it was going to be. He said, you're going to be absolutely running to the ground. You better be the fittest you've ever been. I was already running around the camp at night with so a pack on my back just to make sure I was as fit as I could be, yeah. dreaming about what I was going to do next. So this opportunity fell just at the right time. You know, half past four came, everybody came out the gum sheds, i to go and put a pair of lightweight trousers and the waterproof on my Bergen on my back and off I'd go running. Uh, there were two or three guys in the regiment, that's kind of guys we were, you know. We were going to do something else. We don't know what it is, but we're going to do something else.
1: So you knew nothing about the special upteam or the, uh, the no course as sausage.
2: it was... And I also think the BC and the BSM didn't know at that point either. I think they had a very, very vague, we're looking for people who are prepared to work with a minimum amount of orders, but actually get on and do more than is required. And I think think that's
0: only you. That's quite interesting because... um, it's been a common thread sort of even up to the selection courses Kevin and I were on, sort of in the mid to late 80s, that there's a lot of secrecy, which I think held the unit back quite a bit by not getting the, enough volunteers through. But I've got a copy of candidate join instructions that were given to me by a, a former troop member who attended course four. God knows where he kept these. It must have been in a shoebox under his bed somewhere. <laughs> um, but, but Kev and I would like to quote from the opening and closing paragraphs, as it gives a good insight into what is expected of a potential patrol soldier at the time. And this was course Force, so I presume this is probably about 1985, a good couple of years after you went on the first one, Ian. So the first paragraph states, The special observer is a man whose operational role is considerably different from that of more conventional OPs. He observes and reports on appropriate targets from behind enemy lines as they appear with the following supporting units to be engaged by our depth-fire resources. Such a task requires a man of proven technical ability and expertise. Further, he should be able to take the psychological strain of being overrun, working on the barest minimum contact with superiors, and the knowledge that once the range of his depth-fire resources is no longer effective, he must exfiltrate to his own lines. The training for such a role must be exhaustive, Exhaustive, it would be morally wrong to place a man in such a position without giving him the best chance of successfully rejoining his own lines. Secondly, there can be no in-roll training. Thus, experience in his task can only be obtained by the observer from realistic scenario exercises, specialist courses and a comprehensive training programme lasting many months.
1: Such training high standards of motivation are considered necessary when the circumstances of work are examined. Each man, regardless of his responsibilities within his patrol, has to allow enemy forces to overrun his position, yet maintain his call cool sufficiently so not to alarm others with whom he shares his hide. To be able to continue to perform his allocated tasks despite the stress and the pressures of being cut off. Indeed, the nature of this task demands that he be at the maximum efficiency when the pressures of the situation are likely to be at their strongest. To effect such work at such a time indicates a man of high calibre who has had the tra- a training programme has both fit- fitted him for the task and given him the confidence and self-assurance to
0: carry it out. So though the language is pretty much of its time, as you can see, and the roles also changed considerably, I'm probably imagining that those attributes were what they're looking for from you on your original course. And I'd imagine those attributes are pretty much the same that they're looking for in soldiers on today's course in 2020.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: yeah. I don't think the attributes have changed at all. I think the language has changed in that the understanding of the role by the person that wrote that allowed that to be written in such that way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. At, at the time we did it, we weren't exactly sure where behind the enemy lines we would be or how far we'd have to exfil or even if we would have to exfil. Uh, and it, it was only as a result of continuing work over the years that was, yes, we're going to have to do this, then we're going to have to do that, uh, and somebody's obviously put that to paper and said, yeah, this is what's required. Uh, and, yeah, I think as as I look around in my head, as I look around the people who shared the barracks with me at that time, they were all well-motivated, up for it sort of people who had... Uh, no doubt in their own belief, you know, it's just that needs done. I'll go and do that. I could do that.
1: Yes. No, yeah, excellent. I think um, I'm going to move on to the course a little bit now. And I think, um, as Colin says, I mean, Colin was on course seven, I was on course 12. But the courses, I think, from probably about course three onwards, were very much the same. I think they'd found their watermark, but obviously, we want to look at course one a little bit. So in 1982, the course was split into a number of parts. We'll cover them in more detail later. However, the initial selection a the colour and I took part uh, it was between about seven and ten days. And by then, that was a well-established programme. For course one, though, that wasn't necessarily the case. So what was the initial selection like? Yeah, I remember initial selection.
2: I don't remember it in great detail, but I do remember, for me, it wasn't difficult. I fell out of... P-Battery Dragon Troop over there and I wandered across the HQ battery where initial selection was taking place and all the recruits had to turn up so it wasn't a big journey for me and as the day continued you could see all these Land Rovers pulling up, and people wandering in and I think there must have been 60 or 70 guys there but it's it's very, very vague if I'm honest. Yeah. Uh, people kept turning up and then we were all formed up on a football field at Hill Design right in the middle of the barracks and the DS walked out front, and I remember thinking at the time, "Who are these guys?" Because they were like nothing I'd ever seen. There was one in a para of smock with his maroon berry on. There was another one with his SAS wings and his buff berry. and there was another one I wasn't quite sure of, but he also had SAS wings. And then there was a maniac at the front screaming at everybody, "Get over there, do this, do that." And we soon learned out this was we soon learned this was air. And he was the public face of what we were doing. Yeah, and you got up in the morning. He was the first one to say, "Get out of your beds. We're going running." When you when you were about to do something, Rocky did all that. He was the interface between whoever was thinking and planning what we were going to do, and he transmitted that to us generally in his own inimitable way, <laughs> uh, which was great because it gave you something to focus on. You know, he's the man. If he speaks, we'll do what he says, and. It's not like the others had badges and berries of different colour and you knew he knew what he was talking about. It wasn't like who's this idiot at the front showing us? You knew he knew what he was talking about. Anything he said might have been conveyed in an unusual manner, but he knew
0: exactly what he was doing. Uh he was a very good guy. You'd only been in the army what two years at this point, Ian? Yeah. Well, two and a half, three years, yeah. Two and a half, three years. So I've seen these guys from all these sort of uh regiments. Um, did that phase you or did, did you just take that in your stride that this was what you expected and you're just gonna go on with?
2: It? Initially it was just the assortment of everything. It was a bit of a ooh, this could be interesting. I wonder what's going on here. But in the back of my head was they also this is why I run about with that bergen on my back around the camp every night for something like this. I, I still didn't know what was coming, but I knew it was what I was wanting to come. I knew it was yeah this is yeah. what I want. This is exactly what I want. This bunch of guys are going to take me somewhere. Didn't know where, but <laughs> they're going to take me somewhere. Uh, and then we formed up, and I believe now they do a basic fitness test or a CFT or something first, but we basically got straight on some four-tonners, headed out into the wilderness, which I think was not too far away, 50, 60 Ks, Hill evolved. Uh and we lived rough, ate outside and followed instructions for the next six, seven, eight days as best we could. Uh, I remember knowing we were going to do this, I've reflected a lot on how it went. and I, I remember it was, it was an awful lot of map reading. It was an awful lot of get yourself from A to B and go now. <laughs> there was no room for questioning it. Here's a grid reference. You are here. Get to this grid reference as quickly as you can. Uh, you won't be. I remember at the time, the first couple of grids, people would just boom, get there, get there. And then you soon realized there'll be no time for eating when you get there. There'll be no time for a brew when you get there. Okay, slow down a bit. Eat on the move. Otherwise, we're not going to get any food today. Uh, it, it, it was like a lesson in time management. You need to get where you need to be. But when you get there, you better be ready to do the next thing. So find your own time to eat or yeah, in yeah. your socks or whatever you need to do. Because when you meet the DS at a checkpoint, you're not sitting here eating, and you're not sitting here changing your socks. So yeah, it's it all about that
0: self-reliance and self-maintenance, and not having been told to look after your feet, not having to be yeah. told to do those things. But Kev mentioned it in the previous pods, though. For, for a lot of soldiers from Royal Artillery regiments, that was quite. They were normally spoon-fed administration in the field, so a lot of guys fell with the wayside on my courses. Was that similar to what you experienced as well?
2: Absolutely. Uh, aside aside all the map reading, selection at that time was a process of, here are some very simple instructions. Mm. Candidate one, for the want of a better number, is your best friend. Don't leave his side for the next six days. Your rifle is your other best friend. That never goes further away than one metre from you. And boys just fell by the wayside because they couldn't stay with their friend. Oh, I'm going to go across and get... Oh bring me one as well. You're meant to come with me. No, just get me one sort of thing. Oh well you two can go home. Uh where's your weapon? Uh, it's just over there, Car. Yeah, well you can go home. And they were just incapable of following simple instructions. And it sounds it sounds really simple. But it takes a certain type of person to ensure that all those simple instructions and all those boxes are ticked before you go on to do what's needed to be done next.
1: But well, it's my time that's standard throughout. You know, of of keeping to the set of basic rules, maintaining it throughout when you're tired, when you don't want to get up because your mate wants to go over there, and all the rest of it. It's maintaining that that low level standard because to watch that, then you think, well, actually, that's a person I can train now. And he, he will take it on board and he'll keep following those rules or the guidelines as much as possible, rather than when he's tired, when he's hungry, he'll take shortcuts. And that's what gets other people killed.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's
1: absolutely, it's about
2: trainability. Yeah. Looking around that group and saying, these are good guys yeah. and I could work with them. You know, it's, a, a, it's not quite an army phrase, I could work with them, but that's what it is. We could work with them and make them just what we require.
0: It's, um, it's interesting that on the course Kevin and I did, so basically very similar to yours, you went out in the field, you are given an oppo, uh, a mate that you couldn't leave us by the side of, same with the weapon. Did loads of tasks. And it must be the same for everybody because I, I remember very little about that initial selection. I do remember you had to do milling, which for people who are not familiar with that phrase is, uh, is toe-to-toe boxing. Um, and that was cruelly done with a guy who'd spent six or seven days not far <laughs> from his side. Uh, did you do that as well, Ian? We that- did milling, yes. It's just yeah. uh, they had a very interesting little place
2: where they had a small mound. It could only be a metre, metre and a half high. Uh, and we didn't we didn't have to fight our oppo. So basically, we just peeled around this mound, sit down there, numbered one or whatever, other side, numbered one or whatever, and they would just shout, 10! And you stood up and thought, hmm, I've got lucky, or, oh, I've got unlucky. <laughs> <laughs> and the giant walked over the mound, and I thought, great. But you knew what was required. They wanted to see somebody who wasn't scared and could show aggression, and you just had to get on with
0: it. If you're really unlucky, you're the me am for. Listeners who don't know, I'm six foot two and 92 kilograms. uh, And I was by far the biggest in my selection. And and, uh, I never got enough challenge from my peers. So I ended up going toe to toe with one of the DS who was even bigger than me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You could get even more unlucky. uh, Someone who was in on course two, who then went on to be part of the DS. Uh, Let's say his name's Pete. He was an ABA boxer.
0: <laughs> I know Pete well.
2: <laughs> yeah. Come over the help. Pete's standing there. Oh, that must have been a great day. <laughs> yes.
0: So, and the other thing that Kevin and I did, in ours was you spent, you had no idea what you're doing, but they basically said to us, go in that bush over there, you and your, your oppo, mm. lie there for 24 hours, take I a note of everything, it, yeah. just watch yeah. that crossroads. Did you do something similar well, to that as we well? We didn't
2: do that. On, I don't believe we did that in select, initial selection, but we did that further down the line. Uh, mm. And there was a member of the DS, uh, Tom, uh, I'll call him Tom just now, who had a very long background on reckeys and observations. And he was uh, he was right into all that drawing of a bridge and how many pillars held it up. Da, 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 and he took some great... Lessons, if you like, to us on what was expected of us, and then we'd go out and we'd we observed all sorts of things and wrecked all sorts of things. And, but that, that's the next phase of selection, I guess. And then obviously, that's filtered down to a basic version an initial selection after a while.
1: Yeah, I think they did that initial selection because we, we had to do things like um, I've seen at night time, we also did a um, like a, cl- a claustrophobic test as well. So they started bringing in other tests as well for claustrophobia because obviously by then the Mexi role was well and truly in. They did the height, they did all that some little bit of psychological, just to make sure that the people that they were getting, there's no point having someone you know really really good at everything put them in the Mexi and they just can't stay in. Absolutely no point <laughs> at all. Or an OP, but you don't know until you put them in it. So yeah. I think initial selection, we all did a bush hide, a, a very very poor type. And then we went off and then did dab Sail at night time. So you had the night piece with a, uh, you know, scared of heights and all that sort of stuff. And then we also did a, cluster, a claustrophobic moment as well, just to see, because you can't do all that. You weren't suitable. So no, the selection not, no. matured a little bit as it went along.
0: So you said, in on that initial selection, 60 to 70 turned up. How many got taken on to the next phase from that 60 or 70?
2: I reckon about fifteen. Mm. Uh, maybe maybe one or two more, maybe one or two less. I thought about that long and hard. I was trying to name everybody. Uh, I think about 15 was all. It. When we came back after seven or eight days, we were all pretty minging. It wasn't even time for a shower. It was uh, get out here, and we all stayed outside the troop office, and it was as brutal as names were read out. Uh, you can stay. You could st- you just go home, pack your kit, pack your kit, pack your kit. And the ones that stayed, they shuffled along the top corridor. And the ones that left, they just left, picked up their kit and left. So you didn't even interact with them. It was just like,
0: oh, <laughs> the guy I've just spent a week with going gone home. Don't, oh, wanna, oh. Don't, don't want them contaminating you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. But you have no idea, and at no time did anyone ever say you've passed. It was a, you can stay just now. It <laughs> pretty yeah. much you can stay for the time being.
1: Well, you were invited to phase two,
2: weren't you? Yeah, so phase oh, yeah. two. Well, I don't even think it was formal at that time for us. I can't remember. But we certainly moved on to another phase yeah, where yeah. Uh, I guess we're going to cover that shortly. Uh, or I could carry on now if you...
0: Well, just, I just want to just wind back a little bit, Ian, about um, you've already covered sort of the backgrounds that some of the instructors were from uh, Hereford, a Parachute Regiment. Uh, I believe there's a couple from Royal Marines as well. But General Stone on his podcast, the last one, mentioned uh, about uh, an instructor from Hereford uh, who was quite famous in his time, and he was shot and wounded in a contact in uh, Borneo, and uh, told his patrol to bug out, and he stayed behind. And uh, transpires after talking to you, that was the famous Geordie Lillico, who was an instructor on the York course. So yes. he, can he just tell us uh, what the Lillico was like?
2: He was a great guy. He didn't have a lot to say. Uh, carried himself with an air of he knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, and it was just a no-nonsense sort of guy. It was like you get yourself to grid 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. You meet a member of DS. And often you'd pull up to these things and one or two of them, there'd be a Land Rover parked at the corner. And you wandered over and you got your next good reference and off you trucked. Not Geordie a ago, he put a hammock up inside the bush. And he probably had a brew and a wee cigarette going. And if you didn't find him, you didn't pass. And he didn't give you any, I'm over here, or a wee ps-ps. It was, he'd sit there, quiet as a mouse, in his hammock. And if you found him, you could move on to the next one. I think boys spent 20 minutes, half an hour, all sorts. Uh, because his attitude appeared to be, you've got a good reference, it's 10 by 10. You should be able to find me. Yeah, I don't need to put a flag out or park a Land Rover. You come and find me. And it was dead interesting. It was, uh, I remember a lot of people talking about that.
0: This is the benefits of doing these podcasts, because me and Kev said that was completely unknown to us, that, uh, a legend that like Geordie Lillico had an input into the first election course. So I, I just want to mention as well, uh, give a, a bit of recognition to, uh, and we'll mention this guy's name as well, is Colour Sergeant Geordie Watson. Uh, who was parachute regiment for the lads in the back in the early troop days, Geordie was a bit of a legend and sadly passed away last year. But uh, a guy that made a huge impression on most people. Um, he got a BM for his work, setting up the special observer course. And I just remember him as somebody being firm, but fair. And by the time I turned up, he was on the long service list. So Geordie was well in his forty, So I was 20 at the time. So it like, a, he was a bit of a father figure to most people. And full of good tips. Some of them you didn't really get at the time until a bit later on. But I remember doing a navx one time, big, you know, 45 45 kilograms or whatever in your back. And we're having a a breakfast in in a a field kitchen before we went out. And he came along, he says to me, get those sausages in your pockets, son. And I was like, and he made me empty (laughs) about 20 sausages from the breakfast into my smock (laughs) pockets. But I remember, you know, four or five hours later, I was tabbing along, I was pulling them out and munching them down my neck. Yeah, so it was a, he's an absolute legend, Jordy.
2: Yeah, he was a guy everybody, like anybody who's done it through the time he was there will never forget him. He was, I mean, he wasn't the biggest of guys, he was a wee bit overweight by the time he got to us, but his knowledge of infantry tactics, et cetera, was phenomenal. And he played the role of, I don't care what your problems are, son. You're making my heart bleed purple piss. Get away. <laughs> and he'd say that all the time. But he did care because he'd listen. And if it, if he thought it was important, he would turn up with a solution to your problem. Yeah. Uh, but I guess he's uh, that didn't suit his persona. His persona was I'm this big guy from the parachute regiment and you're here to do as I tell you. But he was a great guy. I, I couldn't hear anybody say a bad word about
1: him. Yeah. I mean, we've from the uh, Course 4 Joint Instructions, Um, about what what they were looking for. That was later, obviously, after the first course. But do you think the first selection course, even though the concept was new, they were still trying to work out how the tactics were going to happen. Um, They were still designing the first course, especially as as you were the pilot. Did it meet the needs of that operational capability gap that was recognised by not having a long range or stay behind OPs? It closely met the needs.
2: Yeah. Uh, As with anything, you're never going to get it right first time through. So it closely met the needs, and we've got an awful lot of really good people, but one or two who, as I look back now, listening to you speak, would have been weeded out on your selection course because we did get a guy who was scared (laughs) underground, and we did get people who were a bit, oh, this is too high. I'm not doing that. It's a learning curve, isn't it? It's it is a learning, a learning curve. And yeah. people went down to work school for r to i resistance to interrogation, etc., and came back, and that was the end of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and pretty much made a good stab at it, got, I would have said, 85% of it right. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but there are definitely one or two who had all the attributes on paper and could do everything that was asked of them, but there were just tiny little things in there that the job required you to do that they couldn't do for whatever reason.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, but not a bad, uh, for a first stab at trying to no, no, not get something right from but, a role that wasn't really well known is probably pretty good, to be honest. Well, I think there was help because
1: the selection staff who helped formulate, formulate the course had all been involved in similar sort of things. So that helped with all their knowledge, experience and operational experience. They really could write a good course the first time round. Oh, yeah.
0: So we we about a bit of a, all three of us had a chat with Mick Scaife earlier on in the week, and uh, Mick brought some interesting points because he was a DS later on in the course as well, and he was saying that when he was left to General Tony's pod, some of the characteristics the general brought out were dedication, determination, self belief, and ability to work on a small team or on your own, and lots of self discipline. And Ian, you pretty much echoed that at your opening brief as well, but Mick brought up an interesting point. He said what he didn't mention was that the individuals would be from a pool of soldiers that didn't really fit into the daily regimental life of that time. And again, something you alluded to in your opening brief, and certainly something that Kev and I can identify with, because I think if I hadn't got through the selection course, I was getting out of the army, because the regular army at that time, the British Army of the Rhine, was just not for me. Um, so the course was looking for a more individualistic person. Someone that didn't fit the mold. Somebody that was independent of thought a good team player, or just, you know, can crack on their own with no, no worries whatsoever. And as you've pointed out, Ian, following simple instructions was key to everything. So when you turned up, as long as you could were trainable and you could do what you're told, you didn't really re- require a great deal of military knowledge, just a good level of fitness and the drive and determination to do everything well. That sounds remarkably easy, but as we all know, um, you're under mm-hmm. intense scrutiny from the instructors. And instructors are also armed with a lot of background information on you. They've seen your army records. They've seen you. They've spoken to you beforehand. Not only were you being scrutinized all the time, if you're a junior NCO or a senior NCO, you're also expected to demonstrate leadership skills. And if you came to selection with a specific skill set, you might have been para-trained, you've done P Company, you might have been on the commando course, there were more expectations of you, of that person, because you had been better trained. So, even though there was a level, it was scalable to the attributes of the person. Another interesting point he brought out was amongst the directing staff, the ultimate question was, "Would you have this man in your patrol so At the end of the week, they'd sit around a table on the initial selection, talk about each of the people. But the ultimate question was, "Would you have this man in your patrol and If people said no, he was gone and It was uh perhaps lucky that the Battery at the time, or the troop at the time, didn't take the remit of the cellar the scouts. I don't know how you, much you're aware of the cellar scouts, but part of the cellar scouts, who are a, a Rhodesian regiment, special forces regiment raised for the Rhodesian war, as part of their selection, they would ask each of the candidates, who wouldn't you have in your patrol? <laughs> so you were selected by your peers as well. Uh, so it makes me a bit worried because all the guys I passed with were good blokes. So I just wonder what they're saying about me.
1: <laughs> It'd be like the Big Brother house, wouldn't it? <laughs> exactly
0: right. <laughs> but there's well a really out. good, there's a really good <coughs> book out there called "The uh, Sell It Sell a Scout's Top Secret War" by a guy called Peter Steff. I'll put a link to it on the on the pod notes. It's a fantastic uh, book. So as Ian said, you did the first initial week. Um, you have marched in, and you're told you've passed. Um, you're considered not suitable and told why, and pack your kit, you're leaving. But an interesting point for Ian, that he might not be aware of, because the attrition rate was so high in the early days, they introduced a provisional pass as well. So they gave a guy a provisional pass to go on to the main part of the course, but he was told it would be under even more scrutiny, and he was told where he had to pick up and sort his act out. And another interesting point, I think, as well, that when the unit started in Hildesheim '82. It was the only organisation in the army that ran its selection and subsequent training on the ground it would fight on, uh, or under in this case, <laughs> if World War Three broke out.
2: Yeah, that's that didn't quite hit home at the time. We didn't really even consider that. Uh, but as time went on and the role became more established, general deployment positions were talked about. And it was only at that point you thought, I've been over this bit of ground a million times.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know this bit of ground right in the back of my hand. What do we need? So, yeah, it wasn't – maybe it was really smart thinking at the top, but to us, luck. <laughs> <laughs> well, to us on the ground, this was just an area we trained in, we drove out to this part, drove out to that part, did whatever, did whatever, uh, and then as it got a little more organised – GDPs were talked or these general deployment positions were talked about, and they were positions we would take up should World War III begin and they were they were done in some detailed recade, live letter boxes, dead letter boxes, and it was all put in a safe and kept away and as it so happened, it was over ground we knew really well, <laughs> so it wasn't that hard for us to do it
1: and I, and I think the science have said for that because the exfil would be a nightmare anyway, but going over ground, you already sort of knew. I mean it give you an advantage. It's a bit like you you're fighting as a local. You know the ground Absolutely. better than the than the opposition. So that gives you another piece of luck to get you back to friendly lines. Um, yeah, it I think was good it was, a, oh, <laughs> it um, was oh you good know, in it, some. Oh yeah, massive amount of luck. I mean I mean discussed this with the general. If today that role was formed, it probably wouldn't pass muster anymore because the fact that majority of the soldiers that are deployed would never be able to return. majority would be killed. Uh, Even in uh,
2: peacetime, peacetime exercises. So we did a couple of uh, multi-nation exercises. Uh, I can't even remember the names of them. But you could be deployed either A, putting in a MEXI two weeks in advance or whatever, And there was all sorts of people driving Germans and all sorts asking what you were doing. And you're like, we're on the same side in this exercise. Yeah, yeah. You were never going to get away with that. If they caught you during the times of exercise, whether you were fighting the Russians or whatever, you weren't getting past them because they had no respect for what you were doing. (laughs) It was like, you're not one of mine. You must be one of them. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that was always going to prove to be a sticking point.
1: So following on the successful completion of the initial selection phase, candidates would return back or they would start the next phase. For me and Colin, this lasted about nine weeks. So I'm not sure how long it lasted for you, uh, Ian. And this covered mainly the basics of dismounted OPs, uh, field firing, communication, um, advanced map reading. Uh, so uh, the headings were basically signals, which is with HF radios, not with VHF. Infantry skills and patrolling, map reading, tactics, small team tactics. A big one that we always forget about is NBC and First Aid because obviously because of the threat of uh, Warsaw faction using chemical warfare and also the fact that NATO troops would also use tactical nuclear weapons in the area that potentially we were sitting in. Observation post training, farm weapon training and survival, and and a number of exercises, night shift, ultimate aim, exercise last straw, which brought that, that phase to a conclusion. What what are your memories in of that sort of training? <coughs>
2: Excuse me. Uh
1: those once we got past that, those things were interesting
2: because first and foremost I just remember days and weeks and months of infantry skills, infantry patrols, uh Jody Watson led loads of it, absolutely loads of it, and we spent hours patrolling and hiding and coming out and attacking and ambushing and just going through what obviously an infantry had gone through. In their initial training, we spent months at that, months at it. Uh, I guess we had to get up to muster because we could all come from, effectively we'd all come from the Royal Artillery, and our yeah, yeah. infantry training to that point had been very long. committed uh map reading was always at the forefront and then signals I think we were VHF uh yeah I think we were VHF at first five ones, or whatever they were and then the regiment didn't hold enough HF 320s so we couldn't get them so then we had to all start I think the regiment probably put in the right position got more or these HF yeah. radios and we started with them and it just grew uh, then there was your old one times pad and then there was somebody somebody came along, Steve Thomas or sorry, Steve Thomas or somebody came along and we started learning Morse code because yeah, if yeah. the HF radio didn't work, what were we gonna do? So, I mean, it just kept evolving and evolving and evolving and different types of antenna came along and we trialed them and signals i would go as far as to say signals was never really sorted in the three or four years from selection to when I heard it, when I gave up.
0: That, that's an interesting uh, it, point because on, really our courses, uh, uh, on our courses, signals is a be-all and end-all because there was yeah. no point in you being there if you couldn't communicate. Couldn't and, communicate. Yeah. Antenna theory, uh, You know, if you are a guy who a natural signal in your team on selection, you were laughing.
2: <laughs> yes. I mean, there was such a guy in course one who lives up in the Shetlands now.
0: Yeah, we all know um, him.
2: Yeah, <laughs> he had antennas out of barbed wire fences and such like, And that was a great thing because nobody could communicate and then suddenly they'd be through because he knew exactly what he was talking about. And yeah. I think for the first couple of years, it was just problem after problem after problem after problem. We're in, we've got a great hide. Oh, we're operating really well. Oh, we've seen something. Trying to get through. And I guess communication has come a long way since then.
1: Oh yeah, I think I think so. I think if, on my course, obviously comms play a, a larger part. Everything we did, every exercise we did, every uh, from infantry every exercise, everything else, there was always a comms element to it. Yeah, even if it was just carrying the radios, but there was always another comms element to it. And we still used one time pad at that time.
0: Yeah, we
1: also used the dimed uh, burst transmission about, kit as did, well. We, we trailed the bomb yeah. day as
0: well. Do I just yep. cover for the listeners what one-time pad is?
1: Uh, one-time pad was something that was used during the Second World War. It was um, SOE used it and other units like that. And basically, it's a it's a it's a code book. Uh, you only use the code once. You code it up your message into the into the into the pad. You then, in the old days, you'd have sent it by Morse. We were very fortunate; we had burst transmission, so we could type it into a, a device and it would burst or squirt the the message out to the command post. And you'd never use the same code uh, twice. There was an in-book and an out-book to make it even more secure. There was only so many copies. There was only the copy with the patrol and a copy with the CP, so it couldn't be compromised. Or if yours was compromised, no one else's could be. And, uh, yeah, it was was all Second World War ideas and, and equipment,
0: but it really worked. And but also, I think couldn't be defeated. Quite, I think we've all got memories of being in a German wood at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> lobbing an antenna up into the pine trees and uh, mm-hmm. putting up an antenna, and then sat under a lightproof poncho with your torch in your mouth, with a yeah. pencil trying to decipher all these numbers. Uh,
1: well, I remember if you remember as well with one-time pad, it was basically subtraction but in reverse as well, which which was totally against what you normally did. So you took it away in the opposite way. So you had to re-educate yeah. yourself. And when you were tired and you made a mistake and you'd sent a message and somebody was sending a message back saying, recode, send again. And you're thinking, I've just spent 20 minutes with this.
0: That's when you could hear sobbing coming out from a late fruit point
1: <laughs> yeah. So it was never <laughs> going to be the answer, was it? No. no but but it was, it, it, well, what it did provide when it did work was 100% secure comms because it was coded and it was burst. And yeah. Buzz you know, data
2: was great. I remember when that yeah. came, because at that point we were spending two hours a day doing Morse code. We all yeah. had a little key and we were yeah. Burst Data came, It was like, oh, thank yeah. Gosh, it yeah. Was that. Yeah. yeah.
0: So that phase then really was all about teaching candidates to shoot, move and communicate. That That's purely Very what it's about. And, and those are the basics of any good recce soldier, infantry soldier, any dismounted operator needs to be able to shoot, move and communicate to a high level. So, but going through it was quite demanding because each day started with PT physical training, and again you always felt constantly under the micro- uh, the microphone under the microscope. So, it was a Monday to Friday routine. Um, Monday to Thursday was all lessons with PT in the mornings, already said, and then you normally deploy in the field on a Thursday afternoon and come back late on a Friday. Uh, And then you'd be out in the field practicing for real what you learned that week. Uh, Your personal equipment had to be packed at all time uh, because it wasn't unusual to get bumped out of camp at maybe three o'clock on a Tuesday and go out and finish the rest of your lessons. So you're always that dislocation. You're always on edge waiting for something to happen. Do you recall that type of thing as well from your course, scene? All the time.
2: uh, And later on. We'll probably, it's down in a skip. We'll talk about a time when I went away to Denmark to do their Jägers patrol selection course. They're exactly the same. Monday to Thursday, you're in camp. Thursday morning, you fall out, and you don't come back till Sunday night, and you're basically tested on what you've learned Monday to Thursday Yeah. for about 16 weeks. <laughs> but I'm sure we'll come on to that.
1: So candidates were then given some leave before. I mean, and this is on um, Colin and Myers' course. We'd have a little bit of leave. Then we come back for the final phase, uh, which was, again, advanced signals, including the burst transmissions we spoke about, the one-times pad, Morse code, which I used to hate doing, but there we go. Uh, advanced field firing, so we, we we upskilled even more. Then we did advanced first aid, and for, for some people, that was the hospital week where you got attached to a hospital, so you went and worked in the hospital. And we also moved on to um, observation post assistant, Bringing in artillery fire, if necessary, or being able to bring in the you know send the grids for a strike on the target—is that very much the same as yours in? Yes, uh, I think course two or three were the
2: first ones to, co- to go to hospitals to uh, see. Uh, they didn't, they weren't involved in, but they watched operations and they were taught yeah. with what was happening. They were showing how to suture, and orange was usually what they ended up suturing up and. One of our our illustrious colleagues managed to get himself drunk one night and try and suture his leg when there was nothing wrong with it. (laughs) 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 Soon sobered him up. (laughs) God, it hurts. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, that was it. We went to the hospitals. They learned a lot about it. They actually went to uh, the dental side of the hospital as well. We had a couple of cases of people who had really bad toothache out there. Yeah. Uh, and they went along, did some dental stuff as well. Just learning what could do because there's nothing worse than really bad toothache.
0: And I think it's interesting Obviously, as well that Kevin was mentioning Morse code, and we sort of skimmed over it, but that was a really essential skill. And to pass your basic course, you had to get eight words a minute, and advanced course was twelve. And I was useless at Morse, and you were there at night learning the alphabet, listening to tapes, trying to pass it, and. You had one or two people maybe who were natural, but for most people, that was a real struggle. Did you find that as yeah, well?
2: That was a real struggle. It came completely left field to us. Oh, well, this isn't really working out. We're going to learn Morse. Morse seems to be the best way of communicating when the radios aren't going great. Oh, here we go. Does anyone know Morse? And a few of the guys, a couple of guys done 148 Battery, and they had a bit of Morse background, and that was it. We got stuck into it. Uh, it, was,
1: it was, It wasn't something I ever loved. But I could learn
0: that. Necessarily evil.
1: The final phase for me and Colin's course, and I don't know if you had this in yours here, was the uh, the three-week MEXI exercise called exercise test bed, where everything was brought together, including then putting a MEXI in, which is a huge uh, shelter, and the OPs, living there for three weeks, working in the OPs, and also doing the signals in the MEXI as well, and all the other little tasks. And then towards the end... You hunker down, they simulate the strike, and then you start the exfil, which for my exfil was approximately 60Ks with all my kits. Because, uh, you know, after two weeks on the ground, the exfil was horrendous because you had no sea legs anymore, big pack on your back, and you're trying to tactically move at nighttime and you're trying to catch up with the withdrawing British troops, as it was. And that was the scenario. Did you do anything similar to that? On yours. Not along those lines. When we
2: got towards the end, we were we were still working surface OPs. And the first yeah. OP exercise we put on, somebody had an OP in a building. Somebody else had one under hay bales. People dug into bushes and cut out the roots, but not enough of the roots. So the bush would die immediately. Yeah, we yeah. were still working surface OPs at that time with no underground shelter. So we we found an OP and we observed from that OP we didn't have satellite OPs. It was only later on, I think it would be close to two or three, somebody came along with a MEXI shelter, the next from some engineering brigade, yeah. <laughs> and said, this is a MEXI shelter. You're going to have to learn to put these up. So off we went, and one shape, another shape, played with bits of metal and fibre-reinforced material and discovered that it could be torn if you threw enough earth at it, and you could bend the metal if you put it up on top of it. Can uh, I just say that that's...
0: That after 30 years, I've now found out what FRM material stands FRM. for fiber reinforced material. Never knew that.
2: <laughs> it's these steel wires that go through it. Uh, and yeah, that that came new to us. And then we became an underground hide with two satellite OPs. And that with all the problems, that leads to getting out of your hide and going your
1: satellite. And oh, yeah, 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 massively.
0: Yeah. Your survivability then would have been if you'd had to go to war against the Russians in that time. On surface OPs, you yeah. you would have lasted five minutes.
2: Uh, yeah, but there wasn't the same. The enemy didn't carry the same threat. and They didn't have much in the way of thermal imaging or infrared. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like they fly over. You can go there, there, there and there.
0: Yeah, uh, good point, actually.
2: with thermal imaging, uh, that did come around. And we often, in Hill Design, we shared with an Army Air Corps regiment. Uh, they were at the top end of the hill design barracks, and it was when they started to get that sort of stuff. We'd dig in, and they'd fly over and see if they could find us. And it was a—I think that was probably one of the catalysts that said, "We can't do this because when this becomes common technology, you're never going to be hidden." Yeah.
1: Uh,
2: and then, it, then, then it became an underground shelter with satellite OPs.
1: I think, I think as well, the will come along because some of the risk was not necessary from. Warsaw patch drive now because if you if you sight it well they're not going to drive over you they'll just to the side but if you bring a strike in onto a target near your op you have very little protection from the stuff they're going to fire at yeah. Uh because regardless of what we think six blokes spotting a really juicy target it, it is a is a good payoff to destroy that uh, second echelon oh yeah. And I think it was about survivability, and the Mexi did give us a little bit more survivability from our own forces. Yes.
0: So on successful completion of this 17 weeks non-stop uh, selection and training, candidates were then awarded the basic special observer qualification and and in essence became a patrol soldier. But training wasn't over at this point. You still had to get your advanced special observer qualification, and this involved a further five-weeks training and this was broken down into survival with 24 hours of resistance interrogation. And this was done down at the International Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School in Weingarten. And that was two weeks. You basically had five days instruction and about five or so days on the run. And then you were captured and you're put into an interrogation phase, which we'll cover uh, later on in the, uh, in the series. You then had to go in the Warsaw Pact Specialist Recognition Course, also at the Lerp School. Uh, and that was two weeks as well, and that was a very intense course where you could pick up the front rivets of a T fifty five in order <laughs> behind a bush. <laughs> it really was mm-hmm. to train spotter levels and yeah. loss and recognition training were two things that you hammered every day in the troop. And then finally, you got to do some fun stuff as well. You went away and did a demolitions course with the Royal Engineers for a, a week at Hamel, which really, after everything you'd been through, was uh, a chance to go out and have a good few drinks of a night time and then have your hangover hammered by plastic explosives uh, blown up all day. Um, so as I said, we'll expand on the Lerps, uh courses later on as it'll feature in its, uh, its own podcast. But also, you know, the, the training was, one of the things that attracted people to the troop was the amount of training you did, the sheer variety and volume of courses. So You always had to do your promotion courses, but you also had to gain experience and skills in other areas. And uh, to get to Sergeant Patrol Commander, you then had to go away and do the Army Combat Survival Instructors with the Special Air Service at Hereford, which in essence is the same course that the guys on selections do, except they do 36 hours interrogation you only do 24. And then again, you had to do the Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol Leaders course at the Lerp School. And that was two weeks as well. So you really did. The guys, uh, and you alluded to this earlier as well, Ian, that you were very well-trained and you're always away on courses. So, Kev, what were the rewards for this then?
1: <laughs> well, in the beginning, there was no monetary award. I think the reward itself was doing an interesting job. You're getting these courses. You were extremely well-trained. And on exercise, you had a, a, a hell of a hell of a lot of autonomy in getting the tasks done. You still had a bit of regimental life, but not the same as it was in the, the field batteries or the other batteries. So I, I think for me, it was always a little bit of the role more than anything else. But later on, higher band pay did start to come in. I think it was during the time when I think you must have just got promoted, Colin, Band three came in, the sergeants got a higher band as well because of the level of responsibility. Because I think the one thing we haven't mentioned throughout is uh, a forward observation party was always commanded by a captain in the Royal Artillery, but the special observer patrols were always commanded by a sergeant or a bombardier. We didn't have officers on the ground, so you know, a hell of a lot of responsibility on the on the uh, on, on the on the other ranks rather than on the officer corps as it was. And another good reason for joining. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the enlisted It's
2: film. fair to say, though, from my day to, to today, nobody joins for the money.
0: No, no. you're absolutely right. Nobody no. joins for the
1: money. No. You, to be honest, if you thought about it, you're not getting paid enough for, the, for that hardship and all the rest of it. How, how would you quantify it? Yeah. But yeah, to go on some of the courses I went on, I would never have gotten those sort of training courses or experiences like that if I'd remained in a... Well, if, even if I was in the infantry or somewhere else because they just didn't do those sort of courses. Yeah.
0: I think the question was asked. The battery's got an unofficial uh, motto, which is a teddy bear with a noose round his neck and the motto, Why Me? Do you know who came up with that idea, Ian? Was that on your course? It was,
2: and I think it was Rocky. In fact, I'm 99% sure it was Rocky, who one day we all called us all out, all got outside the rooms, and we were given one of them and told, in fact, I still got ones, and I know some other guys do. Cause Can you just expand
0: it? on what, what you were given, Ian? Cause, uh, we were get,
2: okay, sorry. We had a playing card, which was covered over by a piece of printed paper that had a teddy bear with a noose around its neck that said, why me under it? It had been fabloned over, and you were told to carry that at all times, and the rules, if you didn't have it, you would be buying beer for a long time. So at any point, someone could pull their card, and if you didn't have it, if you didn't have your card, you wouldn't bother. So there were on string around people's necks. Were, well, there was all sorts of places to keep it, but you needed to have it. Whether you were having a shower, having a shit, you needed to have that card. And I know a lot of guys who are out, like myself, I know where mine is, couldn't get it now. It's in the attic, but... <laughs>
0: You know there'll be somebody, fl- there, there somebody phoning you up now and telling you they're flashing the card at you.
2: Yeah, I know, uh, but I still have it, and I believe to this day there are still memorabilia and stuff with that on it.
0: The battery now has very good challenge coins, which is an American concept. That's got the the special P um, motto and triangle on one side, and the teddy bear with a noose around the neck, and why me on the other. So if you want to if you want to level up and get a bit and you need to get one of them. I might might
2: go for that. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Rocky. I'm pretty sure it was Rocky that came up with it. It, it, One of the big things that sticks with me is not just course one, but definitely course one, day one of us becoming through the 10 days or whatever, or maybe a little bit after that, all 15, 16 of us did everything together. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going out. We're not going out. We're doing that. It was the closest group of people I can ever recall. We were just, and as other courses filtered in, course two, course three, it just stayed that way. It's a really, really tiny bunch.
0: But I it has to say be- to that, that, that was the same as Kev. You, you, you'd agree that when you were in and I were in, it was the exact same, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, so you went through phase one, Ian, phase two. How many people finished uh, the course then?
2: Not really sure. I would say almost every one of those 15 finished the course. And, when I say finished, the, the last thing I remember in finishing the course was, we were called into the corridor, no, we were called into the troop office, all of us, everybody getting there, okay, everybody getting there, and uh, Rocky, Jordy Watson put a crate of beer in the middle and said, congratulations, you've all passed. And that was months down the line, <laughs> months down the line, congratulations, you've all passed. But we still lost people beyond that because the people who were incapable of living underground, the people who yeah, this job's not for you. But they'd got that far because we weren't living underground at that time, or we'd not done certain yeah, things. Yeah. So and I know that, yeah. if I'm honest, it wasn't that the job wasn't for you. If you lived underground and you were claustrophobic, you'd put your hand up the next day. That's not for me. <laughs> you know, I think people left more for that reason than were. But we
1: we, are, we have people fail on the advance phase because on the advance phase you got you got to pass R to Y. We had people who couldn't pass R to Y. Oh yeah, and then they, they were no longer allowed to be in the patrol. Some of them yeah. stayed in the battery support role, and some left. But I do remember even when I was a DS and when I was down in London, still putting people through R to Y. People failing, and then there was that prone to capture risk that you weren't going to carry. Yeah, and so, we did
2: up to Ashford as well.
1: Yeah, we went yeah. Down to
0: Ashford
2: to do it. I uh, I think that was the second or third time we'd been through it.
0: That's where and the Intelligence Corps were based at the time, wasn't it?
2: Yes, in yeah. Kent, yeah. yeah. And the first time you do it, it's a bit of a novelty. <laughs> to have 24 hours, but it's a bit of a novelty. The second time you do it, you're out in your escape and evasion going, <laughs> I
1: know it's coming here.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This not going to be much fun. Yeah. And the then, second time's worse. <laughs> absolutely. And then there were people who'd been through it, who when they got to it, i have done this before, I don't need to do this. I, I don't need to do this. And they just couldn't do it again. Yeah. And they left the course as well. And it is a fairly traumatic thing, but...
0: I was quite lucky because I went down to Ashford uh, and did the conduct after capture and prisoner handling and tactical questioning course. So I managed to get my own back on a couple of people. I was I was on the opposite side of the interrogation room doing the interrogating. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So you, you did all that, Ian, and then um, you mentioned that the Danish uh, Jäger Corps. How how the hell did you end up on that after going through all that selection for OPs? You then decide that you're going to have another go at this? No, I think as part
2: of... like There was a captain or a major or somebody dotting about. I remember Don Grant... another name. I remember people going about, and I think they they must have been going through... There must be a military book somewhere that says these courses are available to these sorts of people. These sorts of people... Because they kept finding things like we didn't start going to Lerp School straight away. Somebody found we could get there. So we Lerp School and then somebody came across as an opportunity for four British Special Forces trade troops to go across and do a swap. So the Danish Jaeger sent somebody to Hereford and we went across from our place to do their selection. But at the time, they couldn't sell it to the brigade commander or whoever they had to sell it to. I don't know who they had to sell it to. So we had to take an infantryman with us in case our skills weren't good enough. So this poor guy, a uh, Scotsman called, uh, I will not tell you his name, was allocated to us as our infantry expert. Of course, their, their uh, selection course was like our selection course. Get that pack on your back, walk for days,
0: run a bit. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't prepared for that. Was he armoured, was he? Was he from an armoured battalion? Yeah, so he well, the was furthest easy. his pack got was a uh, Bergen got was out of a, a four three two and on to yeah. Yeah.
2: or a seven or something. Yeah, so he was not up for it, but he was a good guy and he, he got through the whole thing. But it didn't change. On a Monday, we were in the classroom. At night, we had lessons. On a Tuesday night, well, every morning of life, Monday to Thursday, you swam at half past six in a swimming pool with your boots and your uniform and your rifle all the time. If you didn't do that, you could go home. Every Tuesday and Thursday, you walked all night before you started your Friday survival exercise. So you just got checkpoint, go, and you were in pairs, go, go, go. Wherever you were at six in the morning, you got in the four-ton and they took you straight to the swimming pool. Two nights a week, you didn't sleep. Well, we used to, we learned how to sleep walking. So we used to tie a we used to tie a string between us and the front man would walk and the back guy would basically close his eyes, and you'd be amazed how much rest you can get while still walking with your eyes (laughs) closed in the middle of the night. It wasn't about a patrol. It was just about you're going to go from A to B to C to D until you get picked up at 6 in the morning. And if you decided to sit on your bum and do nothing, you just went home. And they were were a very – I mean, they loved what they did, and they were very proud of the regiment. I remember being out on an exercise, and we were river crossing, and one of them said, which was really ironic because he served with the Danish lifeguards, but apparently they don't swim. <laughs> and they skipped this river crossing and it was, it was break the ice stuff, smash the ice, get in, get across. And he said, I'm not doing that. And this was like four o'clock Friday, Saturday morning because we we're on a survival exercise. And the boy said, you return to your unit. Be there at eight o'clock Monday morning. Goodbye. And he didn't get a truck back to wherever. They just left him in the middle of the forest. Make your own way the- back. Make your own way back. And if you're not back on Monday, you'll be able. So there were quite a bunch. <laughs> the only downside to them was they were so excited about jumping out of helicopters and aircraft. You could be mid-lesson and an aircraft would turn up and they'd be like, Oh, sorry, we must go, and they'd all get parachutes and run out and they want to jump. That's what they wanted to do. And that was up in Alborg, and the old flying coffins, I can't remember the real name for those things now little short, stubby short winged aircraft that they took. They used to take off on the main driveway going into the base. So they'd just get scrambled. They'd open the front gates and these things, would, whoosh, 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 and they'd take off on there. It was an amazing place to go. So how long that was that course? Was 16 weeks. And uh, it's so
0: every, every from special piece pass it?
2: Yeah, well, two of us passed. Two of us were invited to stay on for next phase training, and the other two passed but weren't invited to stay on for it. It was horrendous. <laughs> it was, the, the FTX, we went out for nine days. We walked 110 kilometers the first day with everything on our back, including uh, plastic explosives. We didn't have detonators. Uh, we arrived, we ate, and then we went and put in a, an ambush that night through a forest. And, of course, we, we prided ourselves on being better than them. So that it, was, it was a fir tree forest in the middle of Denmark, and the trees had slushy snow. It was about one degree. It was just starting to melt. So if you brushed it, it was like somebody chucked a bucket of water on you. But we're going to put in an ambush, so we wouldn't wear waterproofs. They're too noisy. Why would you wear waterproofs? They all had the waterproofs on. But us, for no, we're not wearing waterproofs. What are you doing? You're pretending to be special forces. So we wouldn't wear waterproofs, and we lay there, uh, oh I think we lay there for about two hours waiting to put in this ambush. And we actually put plastic explosives out on a railway track and we were given dead to this and we blew it. Uh and then it was time to move, RB1. And if the guy who was with me that night hadn't dragged my arse and said, Get up, we need to run, and we ran for about five K, I'd have had hypothermia there. There and then. Got soaked going in up with us wet snow. It was easy zero one degrees and we were sitting there waiting for this, to blow this railway track, and then he basically got me up, we ran, we ran for 5k, and then it was all fine. But I don't recognise, but there's certainly never another hour in me. Oh, no chance. We laugh about that. Well, you're, not selling,
0: you're not selling it to me, especially at my age, yeah. but I think, these, I think these things are best observed from the safety of your couch in this day and age. <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> it, it was a great course, phenomenal course, and they really took great pride in their regiment. It was really good.
0: Oh, good. Okay. Well, th- thanks for covering that, mate. So... We've talked about the selection process, and very much in your day, it was still finding its way. Uh, It was still finding its way with equipment, still finding its way with tactics, and in some respects, still finding its way with a role. But when you look back on it, the, the turning point really probably came September 1984, when the concept and role was proven on Exercise Lionheart. And I'm just going to quote a few facts and figures here for listeners because the scope of this exercise is massive. And uh, if you recall back to the second podcast with General, there were 155,000 British soldiers in Germany in the British Army the Rhine at this time. So Exercise Lionheart was the largest field training exercise since 1945. There were nearly 58,000 British soldiers and airmen taking part alongside NATO allies Allies in total 131,000 ground and air personnel. And if you recall that one BR Corps, as described by the General in the last podcast as well, its role was basically to hold the Russians up for seven days to allow reinforcements to come across. So Lionheart involved transporting nearly 60,000 soldiers and airmen from Britain by air and sea at very short notice, which was an absolutely huge logistical effort to reinforce BOR against the Soviet threat. A newspaper report at the time said that, quoted from a General Leopold Chalupa, who's a West German commander, and he said that Allied Alliance forces were studying the tactical concept of attacking follow-on forces. These are the forces that military officials expect the Soviet Union would throw into an invasion after the first wave attacks. And that is pretty much what the Special P troop role was created for. Uh, so this exercise and the troop deploying on it pretty much proved that concept and the role. And I remember that Tom Clancy's book, Red Storm Rising, was a favorite in the troop in the 1980s. Did you ever read that, Ian? Red Storm Rising?
2: Probably. Lionheart was something else. We deployed uh, however many days in. It was getting quite close to the end. We were sat in a satellite OP and a regiment of German leopard tanks turned up. And we were on it, like, built into some really ugly bushes right on the edge looking over the valley. And these things just started to reverse into where we were. Were you on, the, were
0: you on a surface OP at this time?
2: Yeah, we were in a satellite on the surface. Yeah. So we were literally going, do we stand up, Stand? do we, do we stand up and say, whoa, 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 we, you know, it, it's that point, had it been real war, you'd have had to take some out, do we stand, we? Do, 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 and then they stopped, and they were as close as a metre from running us over at this point, a metre, and as a regiment of leopards, it was, I'd never seen a regiment of tanks before, the noise they made was phenomenal, and they sat there for not very long, and we communicated the way we were meant to communicate, and it was just as Index was coming. And index came and this whole regiment of tanks took off and the ground shook. And you were like, wow, we were a metre from getting run over there. Yeah. <laughs> it was as close as that.
0: Well, I, I, I mean, I can recommend Redstorm Rising for MD who wants to flavour of what we've been talking about, because it does mention sort of stay behind troops and that as well. But that really gives a good idea of what uh, a third world war would have looked like and how the Russians would have came across the border.
1: And as usual, when we move to, to finish off our podcast, we finish with uh, Desert Island Dits, which our guests then pick a favourite book, a favourite film, and a luxury item. So, Ian, your favourite military book? I don't read military books. I, I read <laughs> a, a favourite book of mine, and I,
2: I, I actually went through a long list of books that I've enjoyed. The favourite book of mine would be Moneyball, and I do believe it's relevant to the trip because it's about finding a way to do something in a different way to things are normally done. Yeah. And my whole life's been like that. I worked in another job and uh, analysing sport, and it was about analysing sport the way nobody else had done it. And Moneyball really is. It is what we did in the troop. We did what we did in a different way to had never been done before. We managed to use resources in ways that had never been used before or slightly differently or acquire resources that needed to be used. Moneyball sums it up for me. I think that's uh
0: a- Was this about baseball for a member? Yes, yes.
2: So the premise of the book is there's a fairly small baseball company or baseball franchise, and they want to do well. How are they going to do it? They've no money. They can't buy the best batters. They can't buy. And somebody says, well, if you look at statistics, this guy here is brilliant at this. We could get him for next to no money. And if we get him to do that, then we'd be able to do this. And if we're able to do this, then we'll manage to win some games. So they they picked on people who weren't popular, and they brought them into the franchise. And then Mm -hmm. instead of looking to hit, out-the-park shots all the time. They played little one basers and 2 basers, and they managed to run batters in in a way that nobody had ever done before. And they changed the face of baseball. It was amazing.
0: I think they made a film of that as well, didn't they? They made a film of it as well, yeah. It's an interesting book.
2: My fellow classic, Apocalypse Now. I'd never seen anything like it, and I still haven't, and I still watch it. It's just... (laughs) It's up the river and... You know, Colonel Kurtz and all that. It's just a classic. It's just... I remember the first time I watched it, just looking at it going, what was all that about? <laughs> nobody knew. Uh,
0: nobody, nobody still does.
2: <laughs> well, there's some examples going back to African tribes that have been taken over by dictators and such like that. They say that's maybe based around loosely, but it is something else. It's just... Uh... Well,
0: it's it's based on a a short novel... Called Heart of Darkness by yeah, Joseph Conrad, yeah. and the character in it—I can't remember what his occupation is—but he's also called Kurt. He's a Marlon Brando. Coffee trader, brand yeah. trade, got you. It's you a know. really
2: good, yeah. It's uh, how he he basically enslaved all the people to treat like God to get the coffee, and uh, yeah, it's a reflection of that. It's really good.
0: Have you really. seen the documentary about it being made? No, mate. You need to you need to look at that. That is absolutely amazing. Um, about how that film was made. Just that the set got blown to pieces by a hurricane. Um, Marlon Brando turned up and he's like 50 stone. That's why most of his scenes are shot in darkness. Um, Martin Sheen, who plays Captain Willard, he had a heart attack on set. It was an absolute nightmare of a film to shoot. But if you get a chance to see the documentary, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, it's a fantastic watch.
2: I might give that a go. My luxury item isn't really a luxury item. It's more of an item. I would like either my jackknife or a sharp knife because I can. I sit out in the deck at the back sometimes. And I'm quite happy making little fire sticks and whittling away bits of wood, and I could kill endless hours doing that. Any particular knife? No, nope, I quit. Like, I still have the original army jackknife I was given when I joined the army, and I keep it sharp. It's not Pretty a really cool. great knife, but <laughs> it, it, it holds.
0: It, Being a Scotsman, it, turns- it was free.
2: <laughs> That's probably <what> true. <we> <laughs> yeah, just a sharp knife. I think there's a lot of value in a sharp knife.
0: Absolutely,
2: every good hours with a sharp knife.
0: And every soldier has a has a knife in them. Just like the Boy Scouts. So well, every soldier has a handful of knives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're the ones you worry about, Ian. So my re- Kevin and I always give a recommendation. So my recommendation this week is something I watched recently on BBC iPlayer. It's called uh, Behind the Lines. It was shot in 1985 and it's about the Mountain Arctic Warfare card of the Royal Marines. And the reason I pick it is when I sit and watching it, it just reminded me so much of uh, what we did on um, selection, not climbing mountains, obviously, but the resistance interrogation and some of the other phases. And I think that just brings into the fact that these units were cross fertilizing through to special OPs and they brought a lot of these training techniques with them. So. That's why I've picked that. So what's your recommendation, Kev?
1: Yeah, again on iPlayer. There's a documentary called Peter Taylor, My Journey Through the Troubles. He was a reporter in Northern Ireland in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, met all the different actors from all the military to the, the terrorists, the paramilitaries, etc. And he gives a he gives a many, many different viewpoints and, and his story changes as the conflict carries on for the thirty-eight years or forty years. Uh, his view on things changes as he matures, and he sees it—it sees it changing as well. It's really, really good. It's, it's you watch it and you remember parts of it, and you thus also that been on our banner, and even in our few times that we were there, we could see the changes as well. So, fully recommend it. I don't know when it finishes you you on there for a couple of months.
0: Okay, and just to finish off from, from me on this one, you'll see that we've always had an association with the Parachute Regiment throughout. We've had a number of uh, instructors there and we've got a Parachute Regiment uh, former DS and a couple of episodes time who's going to talk about uh, the latest selection sort of in the late 80s. So... As part of our effort to support other veterans, I'd like to draw attention to a book out in the 1st of, uh, 1st of September. It's called The Long Road to Libya, and it's written by Jason Woods, a 48-year-old former Parachute Regiment veteran. And the book's an account of his personal journey through life, covering his time as a boyish soldier, joining the Parachute Regiment, completed P company, and his parachute training, and his time in one para. And it also describes his 20 years in the private security industry, uh, which is generally known as the circuit to those who operate on it. Uh, and later on in the pod series, Kev will be covering private security companies and speaking to a number of battery veterans who have gone on to work in that environment. So I'll publish links to Jason's Instagram account, and where you can obtain his book in the show notes. And uh, 10% of profits from sales will go to the Parachute Regiment and Airborne Forces Memorial Fund.
1: And that's it from uh, Colin and me. So a big thank you to our guest, Ian. And to you, the listener, for your continuing support and suggestions. Do keep them coming in. And don't forget, visit our email, send stuff by our email, and go to our social media links. And these are on our iPod and Instagram and all those other magical things that Colin sets up and I haven't a clue about. (laughs) (laughs) Because apparently we're on YouTube as well. Colin told me that. I was very excited. But there we go. Uh, And if you can, download us from iTunes and and like the podcast as well. Our next podcast will hopefully be covering the delights of the underground Mexi Shelter and some of the weapons and equipment the unit had in in its inventory from the early days through to uh, the end of the Cold War. And once again, big thank you to Nick Beal for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company, ISARM.